Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. The Old Testament book of Micah in Micah and chapter number 6. The book of Micah and chapter number 6. Of course, we're going through this series right now of the minor prophets. And it's usually the section in the Bible that is the most ignored. In fact, some people still have their pages stuck together in their Bible during the minor prophets section. And a lot of it is because they're just not familiar with it. They figure that because it's small, it's not as important as the book of Revelation or the book of John or the book of Genesis. However, these are small messages in size, but they're major in message that God has powerful use of these books. And of course, we've been going through these minor prophets. We started with the book of Joel, went to the book of Amos, Obadiah. Last week we hit uh, uh, Jonah. And now we find our way to the book of Micah. And if we were to be honest, out of all the minor prophets, probably the minor prophet that is the least known about to most folks would probably be the book of Micah. Now, throughout the next several messages, we're going to try to cover the book of Micah in a survey form as completely as possible and hopefully get you a good idea of it. But we're going to do something different. We're going to start at the end of the book of Micah, the book of Micah and chapter number six and chapter number seven. If you don't mind, we're going to read together in the book of Micah chapter number seven, the book of Micah chapter number seven. And uh, we'll read a little bit of this and then we'll do a survey of both chapter six and seven and get a good idea of what's occurring within the book of Micah. So if you don't mind, look with me in the book of Micah chapter number seven. And I want you to (coughs) read for yourself as we read together the book of Micah chapter seven. Notice with me in verse one, it says, woe unto me. For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desireth the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, And the judge asketh for reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that flieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation My God will hear 
me. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Micah chapter number seven? The book of Micah chapter number seven, and notice the phrase that we find in Micah chapter seven and verse seven. Micah seven and verse seven, notice the phrase, I will look unto the Lord. I will look unto the Lord. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the great privilege it is to be in your house, to open up your word and to hear from you. And Lord, as the title here says, I will look unto the Lord. We want to seek you. We prom- you promised that if we sought you, you would be found. So now we're seeking after you. We want to be f- you to find us, us to find you, for you to make this clear and understandable to us. Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to walk through and not only understand it, but Lord, able to apply it as well to see what's going on, that we can understand this very important book of the Bible. As for me, I know my own shortcomings and my own failings. I know that myself, I cannot be trusted. So the best I know how I surrender myself now and ask that you fill me with your precious spirit for the purpose that you get your own work accomplished through your precious word that you would just use me as your instrument but you do the work that you make it clear that your holy spirit touched the hearts and that we would learn to respond to you properly because of this we love you thank you in jesus name amen well if you don't mind as we look into the book of micah we're going to look starting at verse number six and seven And God is doing something unusual here. He is setting up a courtroom scene. And so just like if you would watch a courtroom scene off television, if you would watch it off of a movie or read it in a book, God is setting up a courtroom scene and he is putting his people on trial. And through it, he's going to call witnesses. He's going to pronounce evidence And then he is going to bring a sentence because of it. And chapter 6 and chapter 7 blend together to bring a courtroom scene. And so if you don't mind, let's examine this courtroom scene as God puts it together. As he puts everything there. So that way it's displayed to us to see the verdict. And for us to draw our own conclusions based off the verdict. And that our conclusions will be drawn to exactly what God had said. Notice with me if you don't mind. First of all, we'd like to show you the witness against the people. The witnesses against the people. Notice with me in the book of Micah chapter 6 and notice with me verse 1. It says, Now hear, or hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills Hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Now notice this. God sets up, before the court actually starts off, he begins to bring witnesses to the court proceedings. He wants to make this a public trial, not a private trial. And here he has invited the mountains. He's invited the hills. He's invited the entire earth itself to come and witness this trial that God is going to present before his people. That God is going to show before the people. He's going to plead with Israel. This has the idea that he's bringing charges against his people. So if you can imagine as it begins, God says this is going to be public. This isn't private. This is public. Mountains, watch 
and you come to the same conclusion. Hills, you observe and you will come to the same conclusion. Earth, you watch. I am going to plead a case. I'm going to try a case against my people. And I want you to see that the judgment is fair, that it's right, and that it's just. I want you to be a witness against my people. Notice as it comes up in verse number 3. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now in verse number four, God starts to say, listen, let me tell you, I have done so many wonderful things for you. In fact, let me bring up to your attention Moses. Let me bring up Aaron, the first high priest. Let me bring you up Miriam, who was a female perspective. They all three were there, and they watched my goodness upon you. And of course, we as a church have recently gone through the life and ministry of Moses. So this is still familiar to our mind. But if you might remember that the people of Israel, they were in bondage inside of Egypt. And they had pled, please God, send someone to deliver us out. And God did send a redeemer. He sent Moses to deliver them out. And God, with plagues, destroyed Egypt, declared war on the Egyptian gods. And finally, Pharaoh let the people go. And the people rejoiced as they went on. But God wasn't finished showing his might and majesty. That God brought them and turned them into the land. And they stood right beside the sea. The Red Sea. And Pharaoh and his army heard that the people got lost in the land. They said, those stupid fools, let's go get them back. And so Pharaoh sent his army after the people of Israel. Now the people of Israel are stuck with the sea to their back. And in front of them, they have Pharaoh and his army coming to squeeze them in. And they said, oh, God brought us out here in order to perish. But then God had Moses raise up the staff and God parted the water. And the people walked upon the dry land. And remember that in order to get two and a half million people across overnight, that they had to cross at a 2,000 people abreast. So a line of 2,000 people crossing overnight to get two and a half million people. That in order for that to happen, the Red Sea was going to have to part to about Two to three miles. So it wasn't a small parting. It was a huge parting. It was a major parting. And the people walked on dry land. Then Pharaoh and his army came. And God dropped the Red Sea upon them. And he saved his people. Of course the people started to get thirsty. And so God in order to take care of them. Remember they needed a, a million gallons of water a day in a desert. To feed two and a half million people. To be able to take care of, um, of the animals. They need millions of gallons. And they're, we're in the desert. There's no Walmarts. There's no Quick Trips. There's no Slurpees or Slushies. What do we do? And so God had Moses take the rod and strike the rock. And water came out. And God watered his people over and over and over for 40 years in the desert. The people began to get hungry. That in order to feed all the people. Two and a half million people with all their things. It would require 350 bo train boxcars full of food a day. 
to feed all that crew. And you know what God did? Supernaturally, he brought down manna from heaven. And he rained it upon them every morning. And the people had enough. He took care of them miraculously. Isn't that a miraculous God to take care of them for 40 years? What's more is he brought them to Mount Sinai. And you might remember from the book of Exodus 19 and 20 that God himself spoke to the people and himself he gave them the Ten Commandments. And the people said, listen, please send Moses up. We can't hear God's voice anymore. And so they sent Moses up. And during that time, you know what the people did? They didn't say, you know, what a wonderful God. You know what they did? 40 days within them hearing from God's voice, thou shalt not make any graven image. They made themselves a golden calf within 40 days of hearing it from God's own voice. And thus it begins. How many times we went through the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, and we saw the word murmur. Complain, gripe. The entire time, God's not good to us. And God supernaturally took care of them. They finally get to the promised land. And you would think that the people, they would get over it. God finally brought them in. He promised them. Now all they had to do was look to God for themselves. And God would direct them. But instead, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it was a horrible period. Finally, the people complained enough that we need a king. We need someone to rule over us. We want to be like the other kingdoms. And they demanded a king. And God tried to warn them. And finally, God said, if that's what you want. And trouble hit. The first king of the, of the, of the United Kingdom was Saul, who was a man after the people's own heart. After that was King David, who was a man after God's own heart. After that was King Solomon, who, because of his unwisdom, uh, and didn't raise Rehoboam correctly. Rehoboam became king. And is, because of his foolishness. The kingdom was split into two. You had the northern kingdom of Samaria. And the southern kingdom of, Israel, of Judah. In the northern kingdom they had 18 kings. All of them were evil. The southern kingdom you had 18 kings. You had five that were pretty good. But you had the people that kept falling into sin over and over again. And so God is giving this. Listen. How many times have I been good to you? I've rescued you. I've delivered you. I've answered prayers. I've done this and I've done this. Listen, I want someone to testify. Here, I got these witnesses. Here is Moses. Here is Aaron. Here's Miriam. They can tell you and testify how good I have been to you and the power that I've shown. I want some of you to testify against me. What have I done so badly that you're tired of me? Notice with me in verse number three. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. What does this mean? Well, I can't believe that I'm supposed to go to church. Ah, oh, it's such a big deal. God says, after all the things that I've done to you, and you want to say it's a burden to you for you to show up to church? Really? What have I done that's made it such a burden that you have to go? Oh, listen. God should be satisfied that I just show up Sunday morning. Uh, to, 
It is unreasonable for God to ask me to come back Sunday night. It's just unreasonable. What has God done that it's such a big burden for you to show up to Sunday night? You know, God is such a good God. What, what about this? Oh, I don't want to read my Bible. I mean, it's just too much to ask. I got too much things. To, I don't want to read my Bible. What has God done? We get to read our Bible. We get to spend time with God. It's almost like having someone who used to be a friend and it's like a burden to spend time with them. I guess I'll spend some time with them today if I have to. What did God do that it is such a big deal for you to talk to him in prayer? Why is it that the number one thing that pastors have to do is, are you reading your Bible? Can you read your Bible? Why is it such a big deal after God has done so much for us? Doesn't he answer your prayers? Then why is it a big deal to, have, to pray to him? When he's done so much for you, why is it a big deal for you to show up to church? Oh, if I have to. God says, listen, I want you to tell me, what did I do to make it a burden for you to spend time with me? What did I do... To make you so tired of being with me. Have I been mean to you? Have I been awful? Let me tell you. I've been good to you. I've done so much to you. Listen. I want you to call a witness. Anybody. Someone testify about how bad God has been to you. I'm waiting. And so we have the court case. We have witnesses there. That are watching the proceedings. God calls and says listen. I have some witness here to tell me, tell you how good I've been. And I can get more witnesses pulled up to tell you how good I've been. Can anybody pull up a witness about what I've done so wrong that it's such a big deal for you to read your Bible? Why it's such a big deal? Why it's such a burden for you to show up to church? Why it's such a big deal? Why you have to pray? Don't you want to be with me? Don't you want to spend time with me? Don't you want to see more of my goodness? Then tell me. Pull me a witness. Somebody tell me why it's such a burden for you. Why are you so wearied? You know, that's not the... Those Miriam, Aaron, and Moses are not the only witnesses God calls. Notice he brings up someone unlikely to plead God's case. Notice with me in verse number five. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Bor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. <clears throat> Notice, wherefore Shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? We'll get in this conversation later. But what happens? God says, let me bring up some witnesses you wouldn't expect. Let me present to you Balak, the king of Moab. Let me bring up to you Bo uh, Balaam. You remember Balaam. Balaam's the preacher for hire. 
Someone hired him to pray against Israel. And remember, God didn't want him to go, and he was determined to go anyways. And so he rode his donkey, and remember the donkey spoke to him and started having a conversation, and he's so out of it that he actually gets in the conversation with the donkey. I figured that if the donkey started speaking to me, that I might pause for a second and say, what's going on? But he starts yelling at the donkey and starts saying it's his fault, the stupid thing. But remember that God wasn't pleased and that Balak had hired Balaam because Balaam was someone who get his prayers answered. I want you to go this people that's in my land. I want you to go to this mountain and I want you to curse those people. Well, Balaam said, well, I want the money. Let's get a good shot at this. All right. And so he gets in the mountain. God, I want you to bless these people. And Balak says, what are you doing? I told you to curse these people. You made it worse. Well, I can only do what God told me to do. Wait, wait, wait. Let me try it again. All right. This time I got it. All right. God, I want you to bless these people. What are you doing? And they went over this over and over. And finally, they go aside. And what the passage here gives us a conversation that Balak has with Balaam. After all, if you watch this and you watch the power of God, how Balaam, the preacher, could not even curse God's people, well, then... How do I become one of God's people? What, what, what can I do to get God's blessing upon me like that? Well, that's a good question. And so notice the question that Balak asked Balaam, starting at verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Notice he goes, listen, how can I be blessed like that? Do I need to give thousands of rams to God for sacrifice? I mean, if that's what's required, I'll be glad to pay it. It's the same as someone saying, well, in order to go to heaven, can I pay a million dollars? Will that work? It, will God let me go into heaven with my sins if I pay a million dollars? What about this? What if I give 10,000 of rivers of oils? That's bigger than gallons, bigger than barrels. If I was somehow, if I have enough money to give 10,000 of rivers of oil, will God accept me? In, I think it's 1997, they did a Gallup poll with the top 1% of wealth in America. And in this top 1% of wealth in America, they asked him if you could buy anything real or fanciful, and what would you buy and how much would you pay? And of course, some of them would say eternal youth, and some would say beauty, and some would say this. But on the top of the list of far above everything else, the top 1% of America said that they would be willing to pay close to a million dollars to guarantee a place in heaven. But you understand, heaven's not for sale. And so here Balak is saying, what do I need to do to get this blessing? What can I do to stand before God and be with him? Uh, do I pay enough money? Uh, how much? Tell me. I'll put it in my checkbook. Is it a million dollars? Two million? What is it? Maybe perhaps this. Notice what he said. Again, Balak is not a saved person. He's not a Hebrew person. But he's seen the blessings upon Israel. And he says this. What about this? Shall I give my firstborn 
for my transgression. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. How about this? In order to pay for my sins, can I take my son? Son, I want to go to heaven. So in order to go to heaven, I'm going to kill you and you're going to pay for my sins. Let's do this. Will that work? Can I come, let my kid pay for my sins? Will that work out? Now, he is asking honest question. He's wrong in his answers. But how can I get God's blessing? How can I stand before? Now, remember, God is bringing witness before the people. Notice as Balaam answers Balak in this conversation in verse number 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before thy God. So Balaam said, listen, if you really want to go to heaven, if you want God to stand before God, if you want to be in his presence, if you want to have that type of blessing, this is the requirement not to pay money, but this is the requirement. It has to be done 100%. That first of all, he says, you have to do justly. That means to do right. There never has to be a time where you did wrong. Well, remember that God has given us the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shall not bear false witness, or not to tell lies. Well, let's do our own poll here. How many of you with a raise of hands has ever told a lie? Right? If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. We've all told a lie. Okay? So we have not done justly all the time. We've messed up. Well, let's try a different commandment. The Bible says to honor thy father and thy mother. We would say it this way. How many of you ever disobeyed your folks? With a raise of hands, if you ever did that. Kid, parents are making sure their kids are raising their hands now. Good. All right, so we've all failed on that. The Bible gives the conclusion here. There is none that doeth. <laughs> For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the requirement to be with God, to be in his presence, if we were to somehow do it ourselves, it's not paying a million dollars. It's to be perfect in all of our doings, to do justly 100% of the time. Well, the Ten Commandments tell us that we failed. Well, what about the next thing here? And to love mercy. What is mercy? It's getting what we don't deserve. But it's idea of loving mercy. It's not loving mercy for yourself. It's when someone comes up and purposely injures you and you wish the best on them. How do we do with that? If someone cuts you off on traffic, let's practice that. Is your first instinct is God bless their heart? Probably not. What if somebody cheats you out of money? Someone scams you. Is your first thing is God, I really want you to bless them today. Is mercy one of your default settings? Is it something you practice all the time? That if someone does you wrong, oh, let's try family. Family's always good at pushing our buttons. What if one of your family members, a husband, a kid, comes up and says, listen, I don't care what you want. I want it my way. Is your first response saying, oh, I hope you get it. You understand we have to live this 100% of the time in order to be in the presence of God, in order to have the blessings of that. Well, we've fallen short of doing justly. We've fallen short of loving mercy. Maybe this last one. Maybe this last one. And to walk humbly with thy God. 
What is the idea of being humble? It's seeing ourselves as God sees us. Well, most of us have an inflated view of ourselves, either for good or for bad. You understand, we understand pride very quickly for the people who say, listen here, have you read my book of the 30 most humble people I know and how I taught 29 of them? I mean, we can, we can identify that. But you understand pride is also, God can never use me. I'm just worthless. That's pride as well. It's a false view of yourself. And you understand, have you always walked with the saying, God is good. God is right. God can use me. It's not me. It's all God. I mean, even in doing God's work, look at the check that I'm putting in. Everyone look. See how good I am? Or some people, I haven't seen it in a while, but they get the big family Bible and they tuck it under their arm and show up to church. Look at the Bible that I have. Look at how humble I am. Most of the time, when we even try to do God's work, we're not very humble about it. We want everyone to recognize how great of a servant we are. Well, how are we doing? So this is what's required. What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly. And to love mercy. And to walk humbly with thy God. This is what's required to have that blessing. This is what's required to stand before God. Now remember, God is bringing in this court case a conversation between two people who were enemies of the people. I mean, that makes a good witness, right? Someone who could testify who was not someone on God's camp. And this conversation here, in order to be with God, in order to have it, you have to be perfect all the time. This is why the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all messed up. So as this court case is being presented, it's not turning out too well. This conversation is being responded. By the way, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 has been called the greatest saying in the Old Testament. No statement could have been more calculated to bring home the Jewish shortcomings than this verse. You know, because the Hebrew people at this time were saying, I'm God's people. Look how great I am. And so this verse deflates all of that. Have you kept the law? This I've done from my youth up. I've done my best. Well, you've failed. And for the Hebrew people, it's not the idea of how many works or how, thing, how many trips you make, how many sacrifices. It's are you perfect? And lining up to perfection, we've all fall short. Now remember, we have to tell you the bad news before we get to the good news. This is the court case. God is putting the people on trial. He has witnesses to go ahead and testify that what God is saying is true. He's brought up Miriam. He's brought up Moses. He's brought up Aaron. Hey, you tell them about God, how powerful I am. All the things I've done for the people. Then he goes to the people and says, listen, do you have a rebuttal witness? Do you have someone who could come up and say how awful I am? And give me an excuse why it's such a big deal to serve me. Listen, any rebuttal witnesses? Fine. Then I call Balaam and Balak. Here is a conversation they had. Balak said, I want to be blessed like this. And Balaam said, in order to have that happen, you have to be perfect. Could you imagine Balak, Balak hearing that and said, well, I'm not perfect. If my money's no good, what can I do? And that's the emphasis. What can I do? 
The answer is that he can't do anything. This is part of the case. They are guilty. They have fallen short. They've missed it. Notice in verse 9. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the men of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod whom is appointed. Now as we switch, we go from not only the witnesses, <clears throat> the witnesses against the people. Now we come to this, God's accusation before, of the people. God's accusation. So notice as God now goes, and he says, let me tell you, the charges. Let me tell you what you're guilty of. Starting at verse number 10. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the scant measure that is abominable? Notice it says that the wealthy. Now remember the wealthy here is not just the super rich. It's anyone who has any measure of wealth. Most people how they got wealth. Notice how they got it. And, and it was not by legitimate means. Notice in verse 11. He says, Shall I count them pure with wicked balances and with a bag of deceitful weights? Here he says, you want to, Let me examine them. Let's see how they got their wealth. First of all, they got it by theft. The idea of deceitful balances is back then they would weigh stuff out. So let's say that I wanted to get... Um, Five ounces of something. And so what they would do is they would take a balance. They said this, this weight is five ounces. But instead it's actually um, more than what it is. So what happens is that I wanted to buy five ounces. Instead I got three ounces because they shortchanged me. Or three pounds instead of uh, five pounds that I wanted. So they had weights. These are deceitful weights. And they would say, look, this is a five pound weight. And it's not. And so they would mix the balances. They would do it by theft. They would charge people not the right thing. And the people thought they could get away with it unless they got caught. For the Hebrew people for centuries, this would have been their mindset. As long as I don't get caught... It is legal. I could get away with it. And this was part of the Hebrew business culture for hundreds of years. And God's calling him out on this. Listen, you know how you got your wealth? You did it by theft. You cheated someone out of it in order to get what wealth that you had. You were not honest. Well, do you know that most people are not honest? You say, what? I'm an honest person. Well, doesn't your employer give you Pay for eight hours of wages. And you spend two hours around the water cooler. And one hour uh, uh, talking to other people. And, and, um, and gossiping and rumoring and wasting your time. And stretching the work out. That's American work ethic. I could say that honestly. Most people are familiar with it. That's theft. You are earning eight hours wage. But you're only working three. And you learn how to fill in the rest of the time. You got your wealth by theft. This is exactly what was happening then. Again, God is putting charges to the people. And can you see them saying, you know what? We've got caught. He knew it the whole time. How did he know about this? Notice it goes on. Verse number 12. Not only about uh, theft, the bag of deceitful weights, but notice this as it goes on. Verse 12. For the rich man thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies. 
and in their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Not only the rich man, meaning anybody who has a measure of wealth, not only they get it by theft, they were deceitful, they lied. They lie. Sure, I got that done. And people are liars. And it was a big deal. Of course, America, we're a culture full of liars. We think it's all right to tell little white lies and get away with it. We have a thing of guile. Guile is a sinful sin that carries the idea that I tell the truth, but I tell it in such a way to make me look better or someone else look worse. You said, how do I know that I practice guile? Do you research or uh, play the conversation in your head before you talk to the boss? How can I say this? How can I work? I don't need to add this detail. It's not necessary. That's lies. That's deceit. And you understand we're guilty. We stand before God. Notice again, he's making the charge for the people. Again, the context is the people of Israel. We could definitely... uh, Play it for ourselves. We also know that sin has consequences. So notice the consequences that occur. Starting at verse number 13. Therefore. So because of this. Also I will make thee sick. In smiting thee. And making thee desolate. Because of thy sins. Sin always has consequences. So because of this. God is going to rob them of their health. God's trying to get their attention. Let them know they're not right. And so God is robbing them of their health. Notice if you don't mind. In verse number 14. Thou shalt eat and not be satisfied. Thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hold but thou shalt not deliver. That thou, that which thou deliverest I will give up to the sword. Here he's giving up their hopes. This uh, expression here. Because I work this is what I hope to take home. And you get it and you open it up and it seems like the bag is empty. In the book of Haggai, this is actually given as a judgment. That you work so hard to get your money, but it is a bag full of holes. That it is a judgment of God that I work hard, I get my payment, paycheck, and by the time I look at it, it's all gone. Where did it go? It hit here, here. God says, that's, that's a judgment that I give to you. Is that your money just disappears before you can enjoy it. God says, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to let you know that there's something wrong here. He says, I'm going to take your health. I'm going to take your hopes. Notice this in verse 15. He's going to take your harvest. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. Sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. Here he says, I'm going to take your harvest. All that you work for is just going to be gone before you get to enjoy the fruits of it. This is part of God trying to get people's attention. Let you know that there's something wrong. That you're guilty. You are not right. You're not as perfect. You're not as good as you think you are. The people had chosen to walk in the path of the world. Instead of choosing to follow God. Verse 16. For the statues of Amri are kept. And all the works of the house of Ahab. And ye shall walk in their counsels. And I will make thee a desolation. And the inhabitants thereof an hissing. Therefore... Ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Ahab, of course, was the king of the northern kingdom. Amri was the king of the northern kingdom. And God is saying, you're walking with the world. You're walking like them instead of walking like someone who's a follower of God. And so we have the court case that is going on in chapter 6. God brings in witnesses. Come watch this. I call to the stand Moses Aaron and Miriam. And they could tell you how good I am. Now I want you to bring a witness about how bad I've been to you. 
Here, I'll bring up the conversation of Balaam and Balak. And they had the conversation, what do I have to do to live in the presence of God forever? You have to be perfect. Well, we've fallen short. God brings the accusations now and says, let me tell you where you've been wrong. You're a liar and you're a thief. You're deceitful. You walk in the ways of the world. You are not close to me. And now, as we come to chapter 7, we see Micah. Micah's looking for a character witness. Maybe we can't refute the charges, but maybe we can get someone to stand up and say, Listen, I know him. Let me tell you how good he really is. And so Micah in chapter 7 starts looking around, looking for anyone to testify. Now remember, in a court setting, a character witness is so important that if you have a character witness, you have to have someone who is the upright character. You don't want to have a drug dealer to be a character witness of how great you are. You don't want to have someone who's been spending most of his life in prison and is planning on going to commit more crimes to go and say, let me tell you how great they are. You want someone who has a testimony of themselves. Someone who is moral of upright character of upstanding that cannot be reputed to stand up and say, listen, they are good. They are right. Let me tell you, they have some shortfallings, but let me tell you, they are still worth it. So let's see. Micah looks for a character witness. He looks, is there anyone who could stand before the people and announce that they're not as bad as it makes it seem? Chapter 7, verse 1. Let's see as Micah looks for character witness. Woe is me. Chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desireth the first ripe fruit. He says, I'm trying to look for a witness and it's like going to a harvest that's already been cleaned out. There's nothing left. No one I could find. Verse 2. The good man is perished out of the earth. And there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. He says, I'm trying to look for a character witness. Is there anyone to stand up? There's no good people left. They're all out for themselves. They're all trying to fight for their own selves. Notice how awful this, the character of the people is. The moral uh, fiber is unwound. Verse 3. For they may do evil with both hands earnestly. Meaning, here's an expression. They can't wait to dive into evil. They take both hands and just dive right in. The prince asketh and the judge asketh for a reward. Alright, so here's the two ruling forces. Hey, you want to go your courts to go your way? You want the laws to go your way? Help me out. Scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Well, that's not doing justice. That's bribery. Verse 3. The great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire. And so they wrap it up. So the great man, the wealthy man, goes up to the judge and says, All right, here's a hundred large. Take care of it for me. Every man's looking for his own self. Well, surely there's got to be someone. Verse number four. The best of them is as a briar. You know what the very best man we have to stand is like a thorn bush. Not something you want to nestle up close to. Not a good character witness. This is the best we could find. Uh, we probably not, should not call out a witness if this is the best we could find. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. Meaning that this guy is going to cut you more than walking through a bush. Thorn bushes. He says... The day of thy watchman and thy visitation coming, and now shall be their perplexity. 
I can't find anybody. I try to interview. Can you be a witness? Never, never mind. I don't want you as a witness. Never mind. Verse 5. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. Meaning thy wife. You can't even trust your wife to give a character witness. Can you imagine that? Because they're all looking for themselves. I can't use her as a character witness. She'll throw me under the bus quicker than anybody. Verse number six. For the son dishonoreth the father. Let me tell you about how awful my dad is. The daughter raiseth up against her mother. Let me tell you all the things that my mom does. Some witness, please don't take the stand. Mike is finding someone, anyone. And he's coming up short. The moral fiber has decayed. And no one is going to help you. If you put them up on the stand, they're going to hurt you worse than if you had no witness. For the son dishonoreth his father. The daughter raiseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. How can I call a witness? There was no one I can call. So there goes the rebuttal. So God has brought in people to witness the case. And God has pled his case. He's announced that he's been good. He's brought witnesses to say I'm good. He's could not find anybody who could say that God has been bad to them. He brought up someone. What is it required? It's required to be close to God. To, to be with him. Not to be, have any charges to be perfect. And then God puts accusations out. This is what you're guilty of. This is what you're guilty of. This is what you're guilty of. And Micah tried to find someone. Who could rebut this. Someone to be a character witness. Someone to say they're not as bad. Oh. What do you do? They're guilty. Guilty. There's nothing that can be done. Nothing that can be said. No defense that can be rendered. Then we come to this. The wonderful thing about this court case. Forgiveness offered. Forgiveness offered. Notice in verse 7. Therefore... So because I can't find any witness, because we're guilty, because we're clearly guilty, therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You know what happens in chapter 7, starting at verse 7? Is that God gives the court. He pleads his case. And the pronouncement Guilty. Then what God does is he steps from behind the bench. Removes his judge's robes. And stands and says now. I'm going to pay the fine for you. I'm going to pay the price. You don't have to. I made the price for you. And all you have to do is look to me. And I'll offer you this forgiveness. That's exactly what God did. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see this court case is presented, and there was no defense that man could make. We are clearly guilty before God. And no one could... 
defend us. No one can do a character witness. They'll just do more harm to us. There's no other verdict but guilty. But even in the guilty verdict, God says, I still love you. Let me tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay the price. What is the price for the wages of sin is death. Something has to die. God says, I'm going to send my perfect son to die in your place. He's going to pay your price for you. All you have to do is look up to me and I'll give it to you. It's for free. You can't earn it. It is something I'm giving you. Call unto me. Let's prove it in the rest of the text. Verse 7, it talks about, I will look to the Lord. I will wait to the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise and I sit in the darkness. The Lord shall be a light unto me. He says, I know I mess up and I know I fall. It's God that's going to guide me. I'm trusting in Him. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Notice, I'm admitting that I'm a sinner. I have failed. I have sinned. I am guilty until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me he will bring me forth into the light and I behold his righteousness verse 9 he says I'm a sinner Oh, but God took care of my case for me. He pled my case. He was my lawyer. In 1 John chapter 2, it talks about that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He was our lawyer. He pled my case. He solved it for me. He did it. I was guilty. I was clearly guilty. But my Lord took care of me. Verse 10, then she that is my enemy shall see it. And shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? My eyes shall behold her now that she be trodden down as the mire in the street. Now it's going back and giving the counsel, uh, the, uh, the witness of the countries around them. And the countries around them says, Yes, you deserve judgment. But then they watch as God forgives Israel. And God has plans with Israel. That the other countries who say, I know it's deserving of judgment, but God's still taking care of them. What are they going to say? They're ashamed now. Verse 11 and uh, verse 11 through 17. It's now talking about Israel and it talks about how God's going to protect them. Uh, verse 16 and 17, for the sake of time, I'll rush. But it gives the illustration that the, the nations around them, they're going to close their mouth so they don't accidentally say something against Israel because God has so protected them. They don't want to say anything wrong against Israel. Nope, God's taking care of them. I'm not going to say anything. They plug their ears so I can't hear anything wrong about Israel. So I I don't think bad about him. God says, I'm going to do that one day. I still have promises for Israel. And I'm going to make it so nobody will ever say anything bad about Israel ever again. I got promises for them. But now as we turn back to us, the court case, we're guilty. Clearly guilty. But God stepped down and he paid the price for us. He's taking care of us. Go with me to verse 18 now. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He, restraineth, he retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delighteth in mercy. Why did God pay our price? Because he delights mercy. Oh, what a wonderful God. I was guilty. I am deserving of hell. But Jesus died for me and he offered me forgiveness, not because I'm worth his son, but because he loves mercy. Verse number 19, 
He will turn again and he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. Thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Do you know that there are some parts of the sea that you could put in the entire Mount Everest and it would still be covered with a mile of water? That's where he put my sins. He put them far from me. They'll never be brought up to charge me ever again. He has tossed it away. That court case is settled. Jesus paid all of my price. The stuff I used to do, the stuff I do today, the stuff I'll do in the future. He's paid it all and washed it white as snow. He has buried it. He's cast it as far as the east of the west. He put it in the bottom of the sea. He'll never bring it up ever again. What a wonderful God. Notice with me in verse 20. Thou will perform the truth to Jacob. And the mercy of Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers in the day of old. By the way, verse 20 is what Zacharias quoted when he finally got his voice back. When they said, what should we call him? You should call him John. And he quoted this verse. Why was this verse? Because it's attached to this court case. Zacharias says, I know I'm a sinner and I know I messed up. But I have a great God who forgave me and he loves me so much. And this is a God of righteousness. He's a God who remembers his promises. This is a God I could trust. You say, preacher, why are you so excited? Let me tell you why. Because like Israel, I was a sinner and am currently a sinner. And because of my sin, I've offended a holy, righteous God. I deserve death. I deserve hell. I deserve punishment. I deserve that. And I have no defense to offer. I cannot justify a single lie. I cannot justify my sinful behavior. I can't even justify the days where I said, it's too bad. To, it's too much to go to church. It's too much to read my Bible. I'd rather look at Facebook than read my Bible. I'd rather choose that. I have no defense to offer. I have no witnesses that say, listen, God, you don't need to send him to hell. Let me tell you how good of a guy he is. Because if you get questioned, you'll start telling all the bad stuff that I've done in front of you. I have no defense. But yet God, after he pronounced that I was guilty, I was condemned already. He paid my price. Jesus died on the cross, paid my price, died for you and died for me. Jesus rose again the third day to prove that God was satisfied with the payment. And all I had to do was accept that gift. Let me tell you, a prayer didn't save me. Jesus saved me. All I do when I pray is I'm giving God permission. I'm accepting that gift. The prayer doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. I did nothing. He did it all. I'm guilty clearly without a doubt. And he saved me. And since that time, he's changed me. I'm not perfect, but he's done something in my life. And I know according to the Bible that I'm going to heaven to be with him forever because he, what he's done. You understand why am I so excited? Because this is real. I was guilty. I clearly was guilty. And he saved me anyways. He forgave me. Why am I so excited? Because that can happen to you. Dear friend, if you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, if you don't know for sure that your sins are forgiven, let me tell you, you are guilty without a doubt. You are a sinner without a doubt. And you know it. I don't have to convince you. And let me tell you, according to the Bible, you've offended a holy, righteous God, and there was no defense you could offer him. Nothing. 
You are not a good enough person. You cannot give enough money. You cannot do enough good works. You are guilty. There's no one that could speak about how perfect you are because you're not. The only sentence is that you are guilty and you deserve death. You deserve separation from God. You deserve hell. But Jesus died for you. To give you forgiveness of sins full, free, and forever. And dear friend, if you've never accepted that free gift of salvation, today is the day. You are condemned already. You are already guilty. You're already sentenced. You're already on the path to death. The only thing that would stop you is that God would pardon you. And you have to accept it for yourself. What does it mean to be pardoned? It means to be forgiven. Can you imagine that someone sitting on an electric chair, one minute to midnight, ready for the executioner to put the switch, and the governor calls and says he's pardoned? And the guy says, listen, pull the switch anyways. Think of anybody who'd be willing to do that. They'd all be, I want to take the pardon now. Let's take it. Receive it now. Let me tell you, God has pardoned you. All you have to do is accept that gift. You say, I got questions. Well, then come see me. I'd be glad to take the Bible and show you from the Bible how you can know without a doubt that from the Bible that your sins are forgiven and you can have this relationship with God. Now, dear Christian, what about you? Well, I want to go back to that wearied part. After all that God has done for you, he died on the cross for you. He gave his son for you. He's done miracle. He's allowed you to have salvation. Why is it such a big deal to read your Bible? What has God done to you that made it such a big deal to take the time to pray? Why is it that still today people are saying, ah, it's too much to go to church. I think it's unreasonable for God to ask me that. What has God done to make it such a big deal to spend time with him? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.